morning. The Old Testament lesson on the eighth Sunday after Pentecost is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled, and I used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. The epistle lesson is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Says the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Alleluia. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians especially these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My dear Christian friends, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. A Reverend Dr. Curtis Lines began an Easter sermon by telling his parishioners about the ancient practice of baptism in the Christian church. In something like 215 AD, a Christian bishop made a record of how the Christians were being baptized. His name was Hippolytus, and he wrote about the tradition that was handed down from the apostles. And Hippolytus was born somewhere around 170 AD, so this is very early in church history. And Dr. Lyons summarizes what Hippolytus writes about, and, and he tells here how the converts to Christianity uh, come to baptism, how they prepare and all of that. Hippolytus writes, and, and this is uh, during Holy Week, uh, 185 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. And those to be baptized are told to fast on Friday and Saturday, and then to be in vigil all night on Saturday. They must prepare themselves, Hippolytus says, to be born from above. Baptism will take place on Easter Sunday uh, at the hour when Jesus is rising from the dead. Easter morning, he writes, at sunrise, little children are baptized first. 
If they are unable to answer questions, their parents answer for them. An oil of exorcism is prepared. The ones to be baptized renounce Satan and all of his works. They are anointed with the oil of exorcism. Turning to the east, they each make confession of their faith in the triune God. And, and the words that Hippolytus records there are very, very similar to our Apostles' Creed. They are baptized. Then they are anointed with the oil of thanksgiving in the name of Jesus. New clothes are put on. The bishop lays hands upon them individually, declares the forgiveness of sins, and prays for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. More oil is poured, and a holy kiss is given. Blessings and prayers are offered, followed by three drinks. A drink of water is given to signify that an inner cleansing has taken place through holy baptism. Milk and honey are given to drink. As little children, their hearts are nourished with God's word. Finally, they are given their first sacramental meal, the bread and cup of the Lord's body and blood. And then Hippolytus concludes that when these things have been accomplished, each believer should be zealous to perform good works and to please God, living righteously, devoting himself to the church and increasing in the service of God. And this, this record that we have from the early church, this early practice of baptism, it demonstrates the understanding that we have as baptized Christians that we have received a new identity. That idea of, of putting on new clothes and being brought into a new life. Our old sinful self has been buried in the baptismal waters. We have been buried with Christ and we have been raised with Christ, as Paul says, to a new life. But how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus Christ has defeated Satan, our great adversary. And because Jesus Christ puts himself between us and God's wrath for sin. He took it all on himself by taking our sin on himself and putting it to death on the cross. God's judgment fell on Jesus. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus took away from us even the very power of death. Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that instead of judgment for our sin and death and hell as its result, Christ has crushed Satan and given us the victory given us life, given us eternal life with God as our Father. And it, it's great in our service here that we went through this baptismal rite and we talked, about, uh, we talked about Noah and the flood. I think also of the Israelites 
as they're being brought out of Egypt and they're encamped up against the Red Sea. And there must have been a lot of uh, celebration and, you know, uh, hooping and hollering. I can imagine their, their uh, uh, enjoyment around the campfires there. And, and then they look off in the distance and they see a cloud of dust and they say, what is that? What is that? And then, oh, heartbreak and despair because here they were, they thought they were free of the yoke of the Egyptians, of the Pharaoh, the yoke of slavery. But now, here comes the entire army of Egypt, the great numbers of chariots of this uh, world power coming closer and closer. And the people cry out to Moses and say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Because they're just terrified. They have no army. They have no weapons. And they have no way of escape. They can do nothing against the might of Egypt. In the end, it looks like Yahweh was not really able to deliver them. Their destruction is imminent. And yet, God does the truly unexpected. He doesn't just strike the Egyptian army so that they die there in the desert or something like that. No, he does it in a much different way. He opens a way for them through the sea. And this is likened to the waters of baptism. He opens this way through the sea and he holds back the army there within sight. God could have brought the Israelites through the Red Sea to the other side before the Egyptian army ever showed up. He doesn't want to do it that way. Within sight, he holds the army and he opens the sea and the people walk through on dry land, a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. And then once they're through, he allows the Egyptian army to pursue through the sea and he brings the waters back and, uh, you know, it throws the Egyptian army into a panic and clogs their wheels, you know, like in mud, although the Israelites walked on dry ground. This is fascinating. Clogs their wheels so that the Egyptian army, before they die, they make this confession. The Lord fights for them and against us. And then if you look there, if you look in the, in the Bible, you're going to see LORD in all caps. And that means that it's God's name, Yahweh. The Egyptians are witnessing to what Yahweh is doing. Yahweh, their God, Yahweh fights for them against us. It must have been terrifying. And then the walls of water over, overpower them and, and they drown there in the sea. The, the entire mighty Egyptian army utterly destroyed. So that the imminent destruction of God's people turns into one of God's finest hours. And then think of that but in light now of Jesus crucifixion because Jesus is Israel he is Israel reduced to one God calls Israel his son 
and Jesus is God's son. It's as though here at Jesus' crucifixion, it's as though Israel is backed up against that Red Sea. No way out. Imminent destruction. Looks like God is unable to save him from the power of Rome. No escape for Jesus. And as death comes closer and closer, it seems like Satan is going to have the victory. The Son of God is beaten and bloodied and is about to die. And yet in the death of Jesus, God again has one of his finest hours. I would say, mate, well, I can't speak for God. Could be his finest hour. Our greatest adversaries, sin, death, and the devil, are destroyed, overthrown. Sin, because the sin that burdened us, that condemned us, that separated us from God, was lifted from us and placed on Jesus. Death is overcome because the wages of sin, which is death, those wages are no longer ours. The devil, because we have been snatched from his kingdom in our baptism, ripped from his steely grip and made citizens of heaven. Israel is brought through the Red Sea to new life, as it were. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, likens their passing to baptism. In our baptism, this same Yahweh links us to Christ in such a way that Paul can say that you have been crucified. You have been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. And we have been resurrected to new life with Christ. And all of this by faith. Christ is risen. And so Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our entire outlook on life is changed. Our entire vantage point is different. Think about the Israelites on the side of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming and nowhere to go behind them versus the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea looking at the remnants of the Egyptian army maybe washing ashore. Totally different vantage point. Our new self, the new Adam, sets its mind on the things above and not on the things of earth. Our new self, the new Adam, believes God, loves God, wants to do what God wants us to do, clings to Christ, all of those things sets its mind on the things above and not on the things of earth. And then we say, sure, yeah, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. I feel very fleshy, very sinful. I feel more of the earth than I do of heaven. I still have shameful thoughts. I still act in selfish ways. I still fall to Satan's temptations. And I have to admit, too, that 
many of those temptations don't come from Satan. They come from me. <laughs> they come from my own fallen flesh. Where is that new Adam in me? Luther talks about this. Luther says that the old flesh, even though it was buried in baptism, the old flesh still clings to us. We feel it, don't we? Being baptized doesn't mean that we won't be tempted to sin. And it doesn't mean that we won't fall into sin or, as maybe is more often the case, run into sin. In fact, in Luther's morning prayer, he says, I pray that you, God, would keep me this day from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. This is something Luther says we should say every morning as we get up from our sleep. Ask God's forgiveness and pray for his help because temptations are going to come. Our baptism doesn't do away with our sinful flesh, but it does conquer it. It does give us the victory over it because Jesus Christ is crucified and risen from the dead. And in baptism, he is joined to us and we to him, joined to his crucifixion, joined to his resurrection. And that's an idea that's pretty hard for us to grasp. But it doesn't make it untrue, because it is true. What the angel told the women at the tomb was hard to believe, but it was true. And then what the women told the disciples was really hard to believe, but it was true. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you were baptized, you received the forgiveness of your sins and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you were joined to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you were given, even at that moment, new life, eternal life with God in heaven. Living still in this sinful, limited body, it's pretty difficult to understand. Get, get your mind around that, but it's true. Not because I told you that, not because I said so, not because you deserve it, but because God promised it to you in your baptism. Your new life is hidden with Christ in God. And Paul finishes these four verses that we're looking at in our reading by saying, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One day your new life is going to be revealed. It could be before the sermon ends. And don't worry, the sermon's not going to go on and on. But it could be any moment. We don't live that way. We don't think that way. But that is the truth. Jesus Christ is coming back. It could be at any moment. It could be in the next week. It could be in, in this year before the year is over. It could be 20 years from now or 70 years from now when the Lord calls you to himself. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that it is going to happen. When Jesus returns or when he calls us home, when he in all of his glory is revealed, then our new selves will be revealed also. 
And this same Jesus, who still bears the scars of his crucifixion, who rose from the dead, who now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, this same Jesus is going to come back. Angels won't have to reveal it. You won't have to read about it in the Wall Street Journal. No one will have to come to you and tell you about it. There won't be a reverse 911 call to your home. He'll come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And he'll come in great glory and you, his child, will be revealed in glory too. And so Paul encourages us to think about that, to think about things of heaven, to think about what's coming, and not to focus our minds and our eyes and our hearts on things of the earth that are passing away. He says, consider yourself dead to immorality, impurity, evil desire, and greed. Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Don't you know who you are, he says. Think about the things from above. Seek after them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and live as God's beloved children. And as we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead, we declare his power over sin and death and the devil. And we rejoice that the power of Christ the power that he has given us, that he has given us new birth, new life in our baptism, we rejoice in that. We have been raised up with Christ, who is our life. So we look at our life's history, and we look back there behind us and we see our baptism. And we look there ahead of us, and there is your new life, hidden now in Christ but soon to be revealed in glory. And these two events change you forever. They change you for eternity. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen.